This is Mike Madrid. And this is Gregory Rodriguez. We're your hosts for Americanata, where we'll be exploring the intersection of race, class, culture, and politics during a time of extraordinary change. We'll be thinking out loud and processing what's on our minds as we go, unfiltered. And we're looking forward to you joining us for this discussion as we explore how we got to this tumultuous moment in the United States. Welcome back to Americanata. This is Mike Madrid and Gregory Rodriguez here to discuss with you the intersection of race, class, culture, and maybe a little bit of politics. Gregory, it's been a long time. It's good to be back with you. Nice to see you, buddy. Who's that in your painting behind you? It's little Abraham Lincoln. He's a little uh, his head is cut off from my he's a little yeah I, I try to keep him a little bit out of it because he overshadows me in so many ways <laughs> but, but he has a presence sitting on my shoulder making Very sure that I'm staying on the straight and narrow how have you been it's been a long time right we, like we haven't done this in some time we had a mild insurrection we had a presidential campaign you're uh, across the country uh, the world in a different place right now I'm well uh, I like being outside of the states uh, it was interesting to watch and read the news as lightly as possible and in, in news from different sources that weren't American. And um, I was, how do I say this politely? I was happy not to be in the States for the last many months. Um, uh, not in a, I don't mean that disdainfully as I, I felt a little less tainted by uh, just by the nastiness of it all and by the mismanagement and by the constant recriminations and by the craziness uh, and you know, Hey, I was happy. I watched. I, I woke up and watched here in Europe uh, uh, Trump's uh, getting on that helicopter, and that, that was actually. I didn't. I didn't really. We talk about the inauguration, but I didn't really watch that as intently as I did that. That boarding. No, he he boarded the Air Force One for the last time. I was there. The I was leaving, watching. The leaving was a little bit more important. I think more therapeutic than the uh, the arrival, the new coming administration. It's like this sigh of relief where it's finally over. Absolutely, and when they cre- they started playing my way. Uh, as the plane uh, uh, taxied away. And the day earlier, I had read in the Spanish press press, that my way, that song has been banned globally through through hospitals because it's so morbid. So in geriatric clinics, so my way is like that. You don't want that. You don't want that in a waiting room for in a geriatric clinic. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm checking out song. Yeah. It's an end. It's, it's over it. It's an over song. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I've never heard that before, but it makes perfect sense. It actually is a perfect way to wrap the whole thing up. Yeah, but you, you know, your clinic wants to keep people alive, presumably, so they banned it. Uh, and first in the UK, apparently, that ban is going global. So let's talk. So now I'm going to ban it from now on. Let's talk a little. Let's talk a little bit about um, the beginning of the of this new uh, a new hope to put it in Star Wars parlance. Right. There's this new change of administration. I think things feel a little bit um, easier, a little bit less tense every day. I think the Twitter banning was obviously very helpful, but I want to focus a little bit, talk to you a little bit about, get some of your thoughts on, on the uh, ceremony, the, the, the ritual of the inauguration and how different and unique it was to, to have a new president on stage with dignitaries and really no other people in the audience of kind of a first in our American political tradition. Um, and the messaging, because it is so important, right? So often we look back historically at these inaugural speeches as kind of foundational speeches about who we are, what we're trying to be, and what the election meant. 
So, so number one, I, I'm not one for pomp, pomp and circumstance. I, I don't think I went to my own college graduation. Um, uh, I, I am not one for castles or or or, or tassels. You know, I, I you know I, I missed the, the, all the castles in France, and I just I've never been to the Palacio Real here in Madrid. Um, so I, I, I have always watched these things with a certain amount of grain of salt, and knowing that they're important for civil religion. Uh, but one, I was, uh, I, and I didn't really watch. I, I, I read the transcripts later, so I, I, I can't tell. I can't. I'm just not drawn to the pomp. Um, one, you mean that the royal aspect to it, the monarchical, ceremonial, top-down aspect to it, always turns me off. One, two, it's like the pardon. Like we, you know, the, the one, one, one administration ends with pardons, which is just, a, to me, a grotesque. Uh, uh, layover from you know the power of the monarch. Yet there is somebody above the law. There's all sorts of people above the law. You're above the law if you know the most powerful person in the country. So, clearly, so I don't, I don't. That's another conversation. But so I don't know. I mean, one, it was boring. Uh, two, the the poet was just beautiful and luminous, and obviously it was just the, it was a balm. You're like, like, oh my god, this like. You know, what did George W. Bush say about Trump's inauguration speech? What the, purportedly, he said that was some strange shit. So there wasn't any strange shit. But having said that, having been comforted by it, I was a little taken aback, uh, given that I read a lot or I've read a lot in the past about the Puritan origins of American political rhetoric and patriotism at the language of, of, of the president of the United States saying we are good people and talking about goodness and, and Amanda Gorman, just it's a beautiful uplifting speech. But when she said, we are not broken, we're just not finished yet. And I was like, wait a second, this is, this is, this is pure, this is teleological rhetoric, meaning the, the meaning to, the meaning of any story only comes at the end. It's like, however shitty things are for you or the country or your neighborhood or your family right now, it's all going to pay off. This is all providential because the hand of God, the hand, destiny and goodness uh, is all it's all going to go it all this is the way the puritans controlled their population and that you this this the, which the, the great uh, literary critic sackman bersovich said it was a it, it was a social control this notion that you're in it and you have to believe that it's going to work out in the end but wait a second is that the only way to go forward is there a way to go for? I mean, Jimmy Carter did say that, right? He said, we're broken and look what people said. People, I mean, so in other words, it's smooth, it's a balm. I see the benefits of a country who talks, that talks that way about itself. But I also see how discordant it can be to foreigners that a country with 5,000 nuclear missiles talks about its people being light or about us being good. And I, I, I find that the rhetoric is quintessentially American I find it troubling. I find it troubling and I wonder if we'll ever graduate out of it in a country that is finding it increasingly hard to say we are good, we are great, we are morally righteous. At what point will we graduate to a mature country that says, which you and I have spoken about before, that we are human and we make mistakes and we're bad and we're good and we try the best we can. So, so Two things. I, I was. It was a bomb. It was welcoming. And but but then again, the whole rhetoric, providential rhetoric, it's a little bit annoying, for lack of a more stronger word. Because it's cosmetic. Because it's not accurate. No. Again, the the good part of providential rhetoric is that you're reaching toward goodness. You're reaching toward perfection. I I don't deny the. There's, there's, that's, that's why it's inspiring internationally. But there's, there, there is a, 
there's there's something problematic about a country with so with so much force at its economic and military to talk about itself in terms of innocence and virtue. And it's it, because it sometimes covers up the evil that we do. It often covers up the evil that we do. And um, so it's, it's, again, I see the beauty of it, absolutely. But I also wonder whether America will ever start to balance it and say, hey, we're gonna try the best we can. But, but I guess I'm a little annoyed at, at the, the extent to which that was a religious ceremony. It was civic religion, and um, yeah. and maybe the country. Maybe one day we said the country is broken. Maybe you say it won't be automatically good at the end. Maybe, maybe, maybe to fix it, we have to say it's broken. Isn't isn't the point though to continually be aspirational? Isn't it to say that we we are um, working towards this greater good, this ideal that is probably not achievable as human beings, but that's the goal, right? It's the it's the parable of the of the marathon runner who, who continually strives to run faster, knowing you're never going to get as fast as you want to be. But but the, the the beauty, the virtue is in the work. Absolutely. That's exactly what it's about. It's at, but the aspirations keep you in the system it, 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 on some level as beautiful as that was talking about light and goodness. It, it, is a, it is a rhetoric of social control. It's a rhetoric of stay the course you know, don't stay the course, things will be okay. When again, I don't know if things will be better if we said some of this shit is broken. Uh, so yes, it's absolutely aspirational. Again, it's beautiful, but I'm just wondering at what point is it, does it lead us also to self-satisfaction um, and just saying, or well, you know, the, 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 what's that? Or complacency maybe? Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, you know, we love the, the Obama quoting Martin Luther King, but I'm not sure, so sure the, uh, you know, the, 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 the arc of history bends toward justice. I, I don't, I'm not, it, it's, there's, there's an inevitability to this language um, that, that again, can push you toward good, but it can also lead you to justify all sorts of bad things on an everyday basis. Well, we've also visited on the idea that there's this really deep strain of kind of jingoism, right, and faux patriotism that has, has always been a part of American life and is is really, I think, was really on grotesque display during the Trump administration, right? It's the, mm. it's the sweeping empty speeches at Mount Rushmore. It's the kind of screaming eagle logo with, you know, the power and might of America, which is perfect in its place, and there's never been anything wrong with the one exception is that there are some evil forces that are trying to take us off this trajectory of what we have always been in our perfection, right? Make America great again. Let's be the, the only imperfection is what others have uh, been trying to take from us. Right. And, and there is a weakness, right? In not acknowledging that we've done bad things. I mean, that's inherently human, right? We're human beings. We're inherently flawed. We make mistakes. We do bad things. The virtue is in the acknowledgement and and the the uh, contrition. I like and that. Saying let's move forward, and that's really missing in our public space. And I think that's really important because you can't improve as a people. You can't build on the your character as a nation without acknowledging that. It's kind of like the the drunk uncle, right, at, at Thanksgiving dinner, who, who says embarrassing stuff and offensive stuff and inappropriate stuff and. For, for a long time, we have uh, overlooked that and pretended it was not there and never spoke about it until next year's Thanksgiving when it 
inevitably pops up again. And then we <laughs> act like we're shocked that it happened again. Well, I like your notion of that, that there's a virtue in acknowledging your, your, your mistakes, your sins, uh, if you will. And, um, you know, as, as we're talking about goodness and light, there are still children in cages on the border. And I'm, I'm not so sure uh, we deserve to be called good or, 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 and, and that we're light if we choose to be. I mean, again, if it moves you to be better, great. But uh, I'm not so sure at this point um, things are not broken to such an extent. Again, I needed to hear this. It was beautiful, but it's a Band-Aid. And, and I think we, the, the stage in the country might require us to uh, go, into, you know, go into our 20s and 30s and realize that uh, death exists and that you should prepare for it in some way. Sorry, that was totally morbid. So Yeah, wow, this is an uplifting Next, that one. Well, look, let, let me, this is important though, because I think it does, it, look, one of the criticisms I have of, of a lot of our presidents, including the, the guy behind me and, and, and Joe Biden's speech, which I thought, again, for, for its time and place, I thought was great, but this, this strong emphasis on unity and this belief that as long as we're together as Americans, that that is all that matters and as long as we're solely focused on where we're going and where we're headed, that that's, that's what we should be aspiring to as a nation. And I'm not sure I'm convinced of that anymore because, because and I, I believe this uh, increasingly, and I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it during the presidential campaign as I was watching um, the threads, the fabric of our, of, our, of our unity kind of come undone. I'm not sure these, there's a lot of elements of American society that I want to be unified with. I, I want to cancel some of these people. I don't want to work with people who defend the Confederacy. Right. Like, I don't think there's, there's a place in that in America. I'm not saying you don't have the right to, to espouse those ugly, horrible beliefs, but I'm not going to say that, okay, that's, that's acceptable. I've got an obligation to kind of ostracize it, call it out and, and socially say, this is not healthy. This is not good. And, and, and the greater good is not unity for the sake of unity, right? It's not union at all costs, which was very Lincolnian, nor was it kind of what Joe Biden basically said, which is let's focus on, 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 on coming together and uniting. There's this, there's this discussion about what unification means again as we're heading into an impeachment trial, as Republicans continue to act like uh, four-year-old children and throwing their temper tantrum and doubling <clears throat> down on it. There's a lot of people there's a lot of people that I don't think want to be in the country that I want to be in. And there's a lot of people that I don't want to be in the country that they want to be in. Well, what, 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 I hear you, but what about this? What about believing in a, in a level of pluralism that has not existed in our life, in your life, in our lifetimes that, you know, where I'm currently sitting, there's an there's a anarchist party office two blocks away three blocks away is a communist party office are you a member the, now the, the or have you ever been a member of the communist party <laughs> even that question that you're referring to the, 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 there is no the, the united states culture is so insecure at its core that it, it doesn't allow for pluralism um and i think that pluralism is what makes the country great but the social forces have always been such that the leadership of this country has always feared disunity because this country's never been unified. Three things have ever unified the American people, racism, war, 
and tragedy, which is all three, you know, all three at the same time. So, you know, I've been reading American Revolution history. There was no saying that the British didn't think these people would get it together because they don't all get along. So from the very beginning, I was reading the other day, I'd, read, I'd just been reading, uh, you know, the, the, the passing of the Constitution likely, the Constitution likely would not have passed had there not been a foreign threat, had there not been Native Americans. That the only reason they agreed to a federal system and to, to a strong central government is defense. So I think this is the classic, you know, what do we do without the Soviet Union question? What do we do without an enemy question? So we're going to drudge up China doesn't work because we're too economically intertwined. So I think what you're reacting to is the fact that there were, we're not on the same side because the only thing that unifies us is the enemy. But, but at the same time, I ask you, um, is there a chance when you try to take people out and say your opinion is not valid, that you're in, you're in a sense emboldening that opinion and, and actually giving it more life? Yeah, but I think that that's what has served us well, at least up until the, the um, present, right? Which is the idea that um, I don't like your voice, but the the answer to that is to give it greater voice so that as repugnant as it is, more and more people will see it and hear it and reject it. It's never been to kind of use the German model, which is to outlaw it, right? That's not in our character. Well, it's not in our history. It's to say you can't have those political beliefs that's against the law. That's not in the American identity. It's not in our DNA. Right, because of our orientation on rights. But I guess I mean, to take out, let's get, the word of the, get rid of the word cancel. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say something is not, uh, that something is an outlier. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that, that's, that, that's the way America's general, and that's what you're doing, really. You're just saying yeah. this is outlier, this can exist, but it shouldn't be at the center of any mainstream institution. Any fight over the definition of mainstream is some viewpoint dominating over another. And you just, right? And these people, how do they get so far into the main frame? What's your, what's your thought on that? I think it might have something to do with what you just um, used to explain American identity, which is it's defined by what it's against. Right. And I've never heard that concept, but it's, it's increasingly part of our discussions about whiteness. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why there's such a, a close correlation with people who are reacting so strongly to what is happening uh, in this country and rejecting um, uh, some of what they, what they would label as political correctness. Let me, let me try to be a little bit more clear here. If what you're saying is American identity is defined by what it's against as much as it is for what it's for. Or Americans have never been unified unless they had something against. Better, better said. So mm -hmm. American unity is, is really about, without a common threat or common enemy, we start to turn on ourselves, right? We right. start to see this fraying of this fabric that you're saying in an era of globalization, when you can't have an other as, as, a, as a viable threat, um, you, have to do, you, have to, you have to kind of slice and dice the, our population so that you're kind of like Donald Trump did, right? He's, he's saying American otherness. The enemy, so, the, enemy is the enemy of white people, and that becomes what American identity is. I, I anybody guess... who speaks against that, getting to the cancel culture part of this, the other, the, the, this idea that if you reject my ideas, however repugnant they are, that you are part of this PC problem, you're part of this socialist takeover of America, that you're somehow not um, 
part of our tribe and therefore less American um, is all kind of intertwined. Right, right. But, but, I, I, but again, to, I, I would say, I, I would counter perhaps lamely to say this happening on the right happens on the left all the time. Yeah. I mean, right. There, there's just, there, there, but, but essentially, I mean, I, I'm offended when, 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 when activists on California, you know, cancel con you know rock stars don't do don't do uh concerts in, in a small southern state we have to allow i'm big on pluralism and i don't believe we believe in it in the united states um you know our diversity is all about representation and feel goodism but i don't know mike i think all these opinions have always i mean you and i grew up in suburban southern california mm -hmm. i don't none of these people are, are, are surprised me i've met all these people at one point in my life mm -hmm. and you know sometimes uh, Sometimes they get lucky at a certain moment of time and they get elected to something, but I personally don't feel threatened by it. I just think, let the loonies be loonies. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you suppress them, I just, I, again, you, you're speaking not as a, if I may, this is a, this I should yeah. tell you what you're speaking. You're not speaking as an American per se, as much as as a Republican, right? You don't want them in your party and that's a different thing. No, party, I'm, speaking, no I'm speaking as an American. And again, I'm not rejecting their rights to voice these opinions, even though I hold them repugnant. In fact, I think I value the fact that they have them. And I've never said that nobody should be able to say what they think. What I am saying is when we hear those things, we have a social obligation to ostracize it loudly and Absolutely. marginalize it. That's what yeah. I'm saying. So right. I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not at all concerned about the Republican Party uh, and its future or its demise. I'm, I'm okay. more concerned about the Republic and this basic premise and idea that we have always held, or at least claimed to hold the idea that the best way you get rid of, 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 of hate speech is not to limit it, it's to let it out, right? Show the ugly, let the cockroaches scatter through sunlight. And I, and I, and I believe that. I, I'm, I'm challenged by it at this moment in time because of this new technological age that we're in where misinformation, clear misinformation and hate speech has found a broader community and organizing element that is now becoming, I believe, a threat to democracy, a threat to representative government, a threat to the institutions that we have built. Now, that may be just me, you know, overreaching, and I'm, 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 I'm very open to the idea that that's what it is. But I do believe that that the idea, which I have ascribed to, that hate speech is not only uh, should only should not only be allowed but it should be given a platform so that it's marginalized by good people may not work in this new age that we're heading into. And it in fact is eroding the underlying foundation, the undercarriage of what has allowed it to exist in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are valid, I, I, I can't I don't recall, but I loved this book I read, an NYU professor on whether the first amendment has been at, at this point, he wasn't advocating, you know, making things illegal, but he was saying at this point, in such a multi-ethnic society, multi-ethnic and multi-racial, at what point do these types of, this type of speech lead to, to social disintegration, which is what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, I, this is, this is the advantage of me not watching TV, American TV and not, you know, not on Twitter. So uh, yeah, I hear you. I hear what, you. What's the true benefit of pluralism then? I mean, you're making a very strong case. We've never really well, been a truly yeah. pluralistic society, is what you're saying. 
Uh, no, them. America's scared of pluralism. Ultimately, um, we don't, you know, we don't let, let we don't let Mexican Americans be Mexican Americans. They have to join Hispanic. Uh, we don't let, uh, you know, it, it, it's essentially, you know, I'm reading right now about the origins of Native American identity. At, at some point, when uh, the English or Germans, whoever groups came early on in the colonial stages, they would acknowledge the distinctive clans and tribes with different languages and different different leadership. But as 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 race relations became more polarized in the late 18th century, they became Indians. So the entire process of America. Uh, you know, Africans coming from all these places and different religions, different ethnicities came and, and through the process of slavery became black people. And then, you know, all this diversity of, of ethnic origins in Europe became white people. Look what we do. Look what we do the utter multiplicity of peoples and languages and religions in our country. We break them down to four groups. That's absurd. And in my mind, that's, that, that's the primary recipe for racism. The primary recipe for racism is not acknowledging your distinctiveness. You're not a Mexican, you're a Latino, you're whatever, you're not a Hispanic, you're a Latin, whatever, whatever you are, it's a reduction of the complexity and the, and, and the intimacy of your, of your family, of, the, of, your, of your story. And, and so the reductionism that we do, and so these started, I mean, um, I'm reading this essay on the origins of the use of the term red for Indian. So, so it's, it, it might be a reaction to the fact that it was so deeply plural. There were so many people from right. so many places and mm. I'm in Pennsylvania. And so, but there, but as things got bad between the groups, that's when they start making large categories for them. You know, they don't make, they don't say, Hey, you speak a different language than that guy over there. You're just a Hispanic, you know? So, that is a problem with pluralism from the very beginning. Um, so things like that, it's like, I, I, I don't, you know, the, the, the post-war unity that you're talking about was one because we had the, and take this with a grain of salt, we as a nation had a great, the great good fortune to fight against evil. We fought against Hitler. We fought against Nazism. And in so doing, we had a, we gave ourselves a charge to be better than that crap. Right. And then we found that we had Soviet Union. I, I'm one who believed you know, I wasn't offended by Ronald Reagan's speech. It was an evil empire. And so we've had the benefit of positing ourselves against evil regimes. And again, that's challenged us to, to desegregate, that's challenged us to, to, to become, you know, have more racial justice. But um, I don't think we, we, don't, we don't come at this from a unified standpoint ever. I just, we have the illusion of post war civil rights era, that's, I think that's dead. I think we've reached the end of both. Mm -hmm. And you, my friend, are navigating in first person. I get to sit here and read. You're navigating in first person the absence of any consensus. That's what you're feeling, right? There's no consensus of what actually, what accounts for legitimate discourse, right? And you're saying, why is this person saying this? And I don't know what's going to create the next consensus, but it, it, in my mind, it isn't going to be suppression. Um, an, another another consensus that brings together the largest possible group of America. Now, you're never going to get 100. percent You're never going to get 80. Um, percent Has to be developed, and I think we're still using post-war language, both in terms of race and in terms of World War II. I mean, it's never going to be that way. So let's let's run with this a little bit longer. Uh, 
because I think you're you're exactly right. I never thought of it that way. But what does it look like without a common look? It's increasingly less likely that there will be a foreign threat that we can identify in a bilateral way, like the Russian Empire, the Soviets, rather, or or the or the 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 Nazi threat. Right? These conflicts are going to become less bilateral, especially as we become more globalized, as our economies become more integrated, as travel becomes more ubiquitous, as as we as people become less homogenous racially and ethnically. Um, what does that what does that look like? I love that you posit that question. No one knows, but you can see like the the, the naming of the Biden cabinet, for instance, you can see that the first this, the first that, the first that, and the 26 tables are then, you know, there's no Asian American in the top level. You can see that that model's over. <laughs> it's capped out. You know, the, you, know you, you can see this sort of at the table where a white man presides is done. Um, but it's so, I don't, I, it, there's, there's some, I think, you know, my 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 sense is a, a more mestizo sensibility, a, a sense of a, a sense of our our, our mixed na nature, uh, 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 allowing for more pluralism, ideologically, ethnically, racially, religiously, not just. I, I don't know, I, I, but I, it, it's just there's something very insecure about being American. I, we don't have the, without the tradition and continuity. We're shaky and therefore need to say no. Don't be different. And there's gonna have. I don't know, dude. I love that you ask it, and you and 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 you 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 just ruined the last next two weeks of my life thinking about it. <laughs> but what what's since you asked it? I mean, what what needs to be done when you're? I mean, again, you're in it. What needs to be done in terms of uh, well of this speech? Uh, look, I, I think you're right. And and when we first met 30 years ago, and we're talking kind of about this. And Dude, I, I, kind of, I didn't meet you when I was five, brother, but go on. <laughs> when, we, when, when we were talking about kind of what was coming, this demographic change and these changes of what was happening politically. And, and when I, you know, you were writing about it um, at a national level by then, and I was just getting involved in politics. My sense was that as we became a more mestizo people, as we became more mixed race, that this would fall by the wayside on its own. I think it is fascinating and probably very accurate that what you're saying is with this incredibly new diverse cabinet, this is probably the apex. How many more firsts can you get where it no longer matters and no one's keeping track? And there's of so firsts. many groups now that, as I said, Asian Americans were, were locked out of the higher, higher. So this is not the model, but go on, sorry. Yeah, so it's like Kamala Harris, right, is like the first um, woman to be the vice president. She's the first black woman, black person to be vice president. She's the first person of uh, Indian descent to be president. Um, there, there needs to be like a Guinness Book of Firsts now, right, to kind of just kind of keep track of it all. And even if you could, at what point does it matter? And I remember us having these conversations decades ago. We're saying that that is really the end of kind of this siloing, at least. And it's not going to be immediate, right? This is going to be a, a generational change where younger people uh, who have grown up in a very complex society just understand the, the inherent mixed nature of Americanness. Right. Having said that, and again, this is where I think we've kind of disagreed a little bit, 
is um, I believe that this is kind of a unique time in American history, kind of an unprecedented time. And I'm learning more from you as we talk about these, because it's what you would argue, and I want to hear more about it, is it's not. We have been in these places before. Where I'm at kind of as a practitioner is that I don't know, a practitioner in politics, as a professional political right. consultant who's trying to slice and dice the segment of the electorate and figure out how many white people do I need, how many Latinos, how many women, how many college-educated folks, is is how um, in many ways there's this overly simplistic kind of um, uh, and crassly I'm going to say sort of what I heard in white Republican politics forever, which is why can't everybody just be an American, right? Yeah, yeah which basically means be white, which basically means yeah. white and agree with me, right? Um, or this overemphasis on the left of having to track everybody's unique personal identification. To the point now where as those identifications change, I need to know and monitor and see all of those things. I think that we are at a point in in time where kind of, and, and again, I hate to crassly break this down to right and left, but Republicans are going to suggest that everybody just needs to be American, right? There was something that honestly, candidly, personally, there was something very appealing to me for that is I wanted to be recognized for my own individual beliefs as a young man getting started in politics. I didn't like the groupthink. I didn't like the, the quote-unquote identity politics at the time. I recognize fully now that the largest practitioner of identity politics is the Republican Party. It's just white identity politics. And because the, 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 the quote-unquote diversity of America 25, 30 years ago um, was, was so small and so marginal that that was not apparent to me. But there was something appealing about the language of that. What I'm seeing now is not only that for what it is, which is, again, its own sort of conformity. It's this need to not be pluralistic, not just not be diverse, but not be pluralistic, to toe the line and say you not only need to be, quote unquote, American and drop your Mexican-American identity or drop your hyphen. It also means you need to conform to this idea of all of us believing the same thing. And what is also, so, so I'm seeing that more and more on full display, and I'm seeing this political reaction to it, which uh, explains a lot of what was happening over the last four years during the Trump administration, what he was appealing to. But perhaps most importantly, perhaps most importantly, is it's emanated on the left. It continues to, to sort of develop on the left in, in ways where there's such a massive emphasis on whatever your own identity is it's hard to track. <laughs> it's impossible to follow. And I don't know what the end game is. It's a perfect question. Um, it's, it's, it, it seems to me that people now are, uh, and yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come out as an old man here, that young people in particular seem to be trying to derive individual sense of self from membership in group, which is itself itself doesn't itself doesn't make sense. That your it's like, individual it's like, yeah, it's like the self. Go ahead. Yeah, it's like the, the the teenagers acting like you know the goths and the 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 the, the, the rebels dressing radically different so that they could express their own individuality while building community with people doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, you know. I... Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the, the backlash to, to, to white identity politics creates all sorts of other identity politics, and yeah, I think we're at a stalemate here. Uh, um, but I, you know, I think uh, I, I can't, um, 
I, I'll just leave it this. I, I find American political discourse and intellectual discourse for that matter, just suffocating. It's, it's, uh, it's all cliques and gangs and, uh, and, you know, because of my freakish nature, I don't belong in any of them. And I belong in several of them at the same time, but I don't want to choose. Right. And that's the problem of pluralism. But that's the beauty right. of pluralism. I also really get to enjoy, <laughs> you know, you know yeah. I, it's funny. I was telling my wife, I, I, I get Singapore papers on my, you know, I do look at Twitter, but not very often. And um, there was this horrible story about a woman who threw coffee or something at a manager at KFC in Singapore. And with my mind, I said, People suck all over the place. So I get a lot of news sources. So I don't, so I don't need to make any sort of uh, uh, um, uh, any sort of judgments about you know, the Spaniards or the French or the Americans. And sometimes I get a sense that humans are flawed. And somehow I go on with my day saying humans are deeply flawed. And I don't know about if, what that says about me, Mike, but that's comforting. Thanks again for visiting with Gregory Rodriguez and Mike Madrid on this episode of Americanata. If you've enjoyed the discussion, please help us out, share, review, and give us that those five stars. We'll talk to you next episode.